this week at Hope Point. Until your heart is gripped with the reality that God pursued you and called you and awakened you when you had no power to save yourself, you will have no vision to share the hope of Jesus with a world that cannot save itself. And I'm so excited that today all over Spartanburg, all over the villages and slums of the world, all over sprawling urban areas, God is out choosing, awakening, stirring, so that when missionaries, evangelists, and faithful church members speak, hearts will be prepared and salvation will occur. Before God created this world, He implemented a plan for people to live with Him forever. And there we will experience unending satisfaction as we are surrounded by increasing sights of God's magnificence. But the only way people will know of God's plan is if the church tells them. Spiritual forces will try to stop the mission, but those who are willing to do whatever it takes will be used by God to bring eternal joy to many. Let's listen to what Richard has to say from 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 2016, the Seattle Mariners baseball team finished second in their division, the American League West, behind uh, the Texas Rangers. They finished with a record of 86 uh, wins and 76 losses. Toward the end of the season, they had an opportunity with a few good bats to make a, a secure a wild card spot and play in the postseason, but uh, they fell short just a little bit. So during the offseason, in preparation for the 2017 season, they developed a phrase and they, they put it all throughout their clubhouse and posted it everywhere of whatever it takes. Uh, they posted it in, in English and in Spanish, but because I can't pronounce Spanish, I have brought in a professional to do that. Whatever it takes, English and Spanish. If there was a phrase that characterized the, the vision of the Apostle Paul in terms of his ministry to reach the world, it was whatever it takes. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, therefore I endure everything, all things, for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Hard to find a more beautiful mission statement, missionary statement in all of, all of the scripture. In last week's study, when Dan was teaching, we saw that these words were written by the Apostle Paul, veteran church planter, to a young pastor, Timothy, in the city of Ephesus, a sin-loving, truth-suppressing city. He was intimidated Paul told him, be bold. Ephesus is located 450 miles today uh, below the, the modern day city of uh, Istanbul. And while Timothy was being weakened by the threat of future persecution, Paul was living out in the strength of the Lord in present persecution. And so Paul's word to Timothy was basically, come suffer with me. Very odd invitation to ministry. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, Timothy, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It sounds a little bit weird, doesn't it, to invite you to ministry. Come, want you to sign up, become a greeter, work in the nursery. Come suffer with us. That was Paul's invitation to Timothy because he knew that suffering is a part of the advance of the gospel. Paul did not send Timothy a, 
Joel Osteen inspiration cube with 350 promises of how to think your way from pain to prosperity. He sent him a letter telling him, don't run away from suffering. In fact, his theme in the whole book is we sacrifice earthly comfort so that others will experience eternal joy. Last week, Dan shared with us four motivations to stay encouraged in the midst of suffering. Today, I just want to build on that with this fifth principle and base it going a little bit farther on the verse he left us with, 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of, of the elect. If you ever want to know what's the best way to approach a Bible passage, many times the best way is to simply use your five little friends, what, when, who, where, and how, and just ask that about the text, and all of a sudden the text begins to come alive. Today, I would like to take three of those words, who, why, and how, to look at this text. Because the who of the text, who's he talking about, you can see is for the sake of what the Bible calls the, the elect. Um, the Bible describes the church throughout the New Testament basically with four terms. This would be the fourth. If you go throughout the Bible, sometimes the church is called a flock because we are sheep. We're vulnerable. We stray. When we get in trouble, we can't help ourselves. And a good shepherd comes and finds us and invites us back into the flock. Sometimes the church is called a body, like a human body. Every part of my body is important. Paul says the church is a body because there is a place for you. You may have lived in sin. God grafts you into the body. And all of a sudden you find that you can serve him in a way that nobody else can. There is a place for you in the body. And then the church is also called a bride. Because Jesus wants to make you beautiful. It's a statement of endearment. It's a statement of love. It's a statement that pictures the end of times where there's going to be a great wedding feast. And Jesus Christ is going to adorn you with beautiful, perfect, righteous clothes. He wants you to be his bride. But here in 2 Timothy 2, the church is called the elect. The word elect comes from a Greek word which means the chosen ones, ekletos. It's the word that we've seen earlier in our study in Ephesians chapter 1. Same word in the Greek, ekletos. For God chose us in him before the creation of the world. So whenever you see the word elect in scripture, whether it's Ephesians 1.4 or 2 Timothy 2.10, same word in the Greek, the chosen ones, it is the picture of God going around the world and waking up people from spiritual death that have no hope unless God wakes them up. Because they would never choose him. None of us would choose God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's no one who understands and there's no one who seeks God. That's talking about all of us. Nobody comes into this world saying, God is more important than me. Nobody comes to the world thinking like that. God is more valuable than my money, my health, my family. Nobody thinks like that on their own. 
God satisfies me more than the comforts and pleasures of sin? Nobody thinks like that on their own. Unless God stirs our heart, we would never seek God, so he seeks us, he chooses us. It's because our condition prior to God choosing us, coming after us, is spiritually dead. No matter how much God shows the world of his goodness through creation and conscience, the world resists him. They rebel against him. They regard God as the enemy of joy and the enemy of freedom. And the more God blesses the world, the more the world loves the blessings more than God. We're also spiritually blind. We do not see God as worthy of the fullness of our heart's worship. We don't even see the danger of living life without God, even to the point we would walk off a cliff confidently into eternity and never feel the sense of danger. But God never gives up on people who are spiritually blind, people who are spiritually dead. And so he, he chooses them. He chooses at least I have a friend. She's getting on a plane today. She spent the past seven weeks preparing for this plane trip. Headed off to a very dangerous part of the world. She spent seven weeks learning to look for people around the world where she's going to be serving. People in whom God is stirring their hearts. That they've been training her how to distinguish between people at this time that God is not stirring their hearts. Don't pour your life there. Look for people where God is at work. Because she's unable to do anything unless God stirs the heart first. Unless God persuades the heart, the heart will not be persuaded. I've been preaching 35 years, and I come to this stage every Sunday and all I can do is preach. I have no power to persuade. I can agonize. I do. I pray and I do. But I do not have any words that are strong enough to persuade the heart. I preach. God persuades. And the only reason that anybody ever comes to God is because of the loving patience of God that he waits for them as he persuades them. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners before we even thought about God, Christ died for us. This is the recurring message. You can find this. this is, I don't need to find one verse of scripture. This is the entire theme of scripture. God taking the initiative first to enter into the life of a man, a woman, or a people. He initiates. He chooses. Lisa and I saw this once again very strongly this week. We have been for 25 years at least fans of Campus Crusade for Christ. I'm an old guy, so I call it Campus Crusade for Christ. It's actually called Crew. We have several people in our church that work with Crew. Um, I see the Gettys right there, and there are others who work on the local campuses with Crew, with college students. I love how crew begins every year, how they begin. Set a table up, meeting new students, especially freshmen, introducing crew. A lot of times they'll use a brief spiritual inventory to find out what people are thinking about their college years and 
spiritual things. Well, we received a newsletter this week. This event took place down at one of the, the Charleston campuses where Cruz serves. And the husband and wife team were operating the table that day. And up walked a guy named Gian. Um, so they asked him, do you know anything about Crew?" And he said, no, I've never heard of Crew, but I'd like to talk about God. This is a direct quote from their newsletter. I have questions. I want to know how to have a relationship with God. My friend told me about him, and he keeps showing up in my dreams. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? August 24th at 12 p.m. there at noon on that campus in Charleston, Gian gave his life to Jesus Christ. It's amazing. All of those students that day walking past that table, many of them not even interested at all in talking about a relationship with God. Why Gian? God chose him and chose that day to stir his heart. But I also want to let you know, there would have been no transaction between God and Gian had there not been a husband and wife sitting at that table. God never leads people to himself apart from the instrument of the human voice speaking biblical hope. The two always occur together. God initiates, but he finishes the transaction through the witness of a human. And the reason why the motivation for that husband and wife team to work with crew and sit at that table is because they know there was a time in their life when God came after them and chose to stir and awaken affections in their heart. And now they want to partner with God in awakening affections in other hearts. Until your heart is gripped with the reality that God pursued you and called you and awakened you when you had no power to save yourself, you will have no vision to share the hope of Jesus with a world that cannot save itself. You know, there's not a more beautiful uh, description in all of the Bible of the combination of God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation than in 2 Timothy 2.10. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. He's talking about a group of people who were chosen by God to be saved. And yet he says, I must endure all of these sacrifices and suffering for them to become saved. Actually, the way he says it, for them to actually obtain salvation. God chooses, people obtain, and I suffer so all that will happen. It's just amazing. The word obtain is a gorgeous word. It speaks of, it's a Greek word which means to meet. For something to occur. For two people to come in contact. Two things to come in contact with each other. There is a meeting between God and man in our speaking. God chooses, we speak. Lost man and God meet. And all of my life, I've heard people say, well, I don't understand. I don't understand how these two things can be true. God choosing and our speaking, I don't understand that tension. I can tell you there's no tension in the Bible. 
Those two realities are glorious friends. They've been getting along ever since the Bible was written. And I just want to give you a tip for your Bible reading. If your human logic can't understand all the ways of God, I would not assume that God is wrong. I would assume there may be something wrong with your three-pound brain. Tension in the Bible, God choosing, we speak, people meet with their creator. That reality is what gave Paul all the hope in the world to go to the most corrupt cities in the Roman Empire, especially the city of Corinth, because God was already ahead of him, working, choosing, awakening people. Well, let me just say this first. God's choosing to save the world is dependent on God's choosing to send us into the world. God chooses two things, the people and the means. Paul looked at Corinth. Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent because I have many people in this city. I'm going to do a great work. I've chosen to do a great work in the city of Corinth, Paul. All you need to do is show up and, and preach. And I'm so excited that today, all over Spartanburg, all over the villages and slums of the world, all over sprawling uh, urban areas, God is out choosing, awakening, stirring, so that when missionaries, evangelists, and faithful church members speak, hearts will be prepared and salvation will occur. That's why this church loves missions and understands the primary thing we can do is to do all things for the sake of sending out the gospel because Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says, how can they believe in one that they have not heard? They can't. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? They can't. So all over the world, people are calling on the name of the Lord. They will, but only when a missionary and a preacher and an evangelist or a church member tells them. So that's the who in the text is the elect. Here's the why. Why did Paul endure all of these sacrifices and suffering? He said, because I want them to obtain salvation. He said, this is the goal of my ministry is they would, people would be saved. Whenever you hear the word salvation in Scripture, you need to think of two things, and both of them are expressed in the word salvation. Salvation means we have been saved from something, and we have been saved for something. Now, when you hear the word saved, let's say you go on uh, to the TV today and see that there's a, a massive apartment fire in, in a big urban city, it's on fire. All you want to know is to hear the broadcaster say, how many people have been saved? Salvation, whenever you hear salvation, the first thing you can think about is a rescue from danger. That's what it means to be saved. So if you're saved, I've been rescued from danger. Sort of like Ephesians chapter 2 says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been rescued, saved. 
When I think about the end of history, I think about really the only two places anybody can go, hell or heaven. And I look at this verse, you were destined for hell, then you got heaven. I sort of pictured this in my mind, two signs above two entrances. Hell, the sign above that would be wrath deserved. The sign above heaven, grace bestowed. All because of God's saving love. That's what motivated Paul. I want to see people go from wrath to grace. I want them to be saved from danger. But he also said, I want them to be saved for glory. I mean, for Paul, it wasn't simply salvation means I got saved from hell, which is great. But I got saved for the enjoyment of God's glory. You remember the last night that Jesus was on earth before the cross? He prayed, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my what? My glory. Lisa and I took our 15-month-old grandson last week to the Columbia Zoo because we wanted him to, to see glory, the glory of animals, of stripes on a tiger's back, and funny-looking zebras, and huge hippopotamuses, hippopotami. We just wanted them, listen, if you love somebody, you want the highest joy for them. And that's why Jesus said, I want them to see my glory. That's what Paul said. I'm laboring that people would be saved so they can see glory. He said, well, I don't know what glory is. It comes from a, a Greek word, which means the weight or the value of something. In reference to God, the glory of God is if you could add up all of the power and the wisdom and the love of God, the beauty of that package would be his glory. How much does God weigh? How much does his love weigh? How much does his power weigh? How much does his knowledge weigh? If you could weigh God, it's his glory. If you took all of the beauty in the world, just think about this, all the beautiful sunsets, all snow-capped mountains, all leaping deer, flying eagles, all the beautiful music, all the beautiful works of art, and put them all together, that would be a glimpse of the weight of the glory of God's beauty. If you took all the power in the world, all waterfalls, all race car engines, all jet airplanes, all NASA rockets, and Jeff Bezos' rocket, all military weapons, all lightning bolts, and all thunder, and you put them all in one place and you weighed them, that would be a glimpse of the beauty of God's, of the glory of God's power. Or again, if you took every generous provision from God, all rain coming down, all crops, all food, all medicine, all forgiveness. 
and everything else that brings comfort into your life, if you weighed all of those gifts from God as generosity, that would be a glimpse of the glory of God's love. Paul said, I want you when you die to see glory, to see the weight, the magnificence of God in all of his fullness. God saves us from our sin that he might satisfy us with his beauty forever. That's why Paul was a missionary. That's why he was a vengeance. That's why he worked for crew. Save people from danger, save them for reward. And that's why Paul was so heartbroken when he went to the Athens, Greece, the city of Athens, Greece, because he was distressed, Acts 17, 16, to see that the city was full of idols. There was not a more prosperous city academically, intellectually, in all of the Roman world. They've got all of these books, all of these libraries, all of these comforts, all of these opportunities, all of these teachers. And instead of focusing on the magnificence of God, they are worshiping two-foot idols of stone and wood. And it broke his heart. It's like going to the coast, checking into a hotel, never swimming in the ocean, spending all of your time in the hotel swimming pool. This is what people do with their lives. You get the glory of God in your you trade that for worshiping a two-foot-tall, your money. Pornography. A person. You traded the glory of God for idols. Paul said, I want you, when you die, to see and go to a land where you see the beauty of God forever and ever. So that's why Paul did what he did. He wanted to see people rescued from danger for reward. Now, how did he do it? So what's the, what's the strategy for helping people get there? He said, well, I have to endure everything for this gospel to spread. That's a huge statement. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That's the phrase, I'll do whatever it takes. For Paul, enduring whatever it takes takes us back to the verse that Dan took us through last week, which meant prison. In order for the gospel to spread, everything, whatever it takes, Paul says, this is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. I love when Paul calls it his gospel. It's not like he's saying, hey, I made this up. It's mine. It's like I have ownership in it. I suffer for it. It's ownership. Like this is my baseball team because I play on it. I don't just watch. I'm on it. I have stake in the, in the game. I don't just read about Jesus. I don't just attend a church that talks about Jesus. I suffer for him. My gospel. John Bunyan suffered 12 years in prison for the gospel that he preached. His gospel took him away from his family. He had children at home. One of them was blind. 12 years in prison. 
And he could have gotten out anytime he wanted if he would have simply said that the gospel that he had been preaching was not true. All he had to do is make a, make a deal with the government. I'll never preach again. So he stayed there 12 years, trying to provide for his money, but making shoes and shoelaces, shoestrings. But this is what Bunyan said about why he chose a life of suffering. This is a paraphrase of his quote. Sorry, John, but your old English was a little too much. It just didn't come across. This is what Bunyan said. I have loved the Lord, and wherever I have seen his footprints on earth, I have committed to put my feet there as well. He suffered for what he believed. For Bunyan, it was clear if Jesus suffered, he would suffer. You know, if you read everything that Jesus said, you're going to come away with the pretty much a pretty clear impression. This will be a costly journey. And nobody knew that more than the Apostle Paul. He cared for the growth of the church more than he cared for his own welfare. Think about that. He cared for the growth of the church more than he cared for his own safety. This was his attitude. All accusations, all beatings, all incarcerations, all loneliness. He accepts them all because of his desire for scattered people to become gathered people, for sin-stained people to become glory-seeing people. So I think the question you can ask right now is, uh, do you love your life too much? Do you love your comfort more than others coming to know Christ and living with him in eternity? Do you love your life too much? You know what I love about Paul's suffering, and forgive me for the rewind from last week, but it's just such a great verse, is his attitude in suffering. He said, this is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. It's amazing. He's sitting in a Roman prison cell. What's he doing while he's there? He wrote four major letters to churches. One we're preaching out of right now, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And then he also wrote letters to pastors, First and Second Timothy and Titus. While he's chained and the Roman government said we're suppressing the gospel, the word of God was going out in terms of letters throughout the Roman Empire. Every 12 hours, another guard was brought in and chained to him. That guard heard Christ, and those guards went home and told their family about Christ. Word of God's not chained. And then message, the, the, the word got out that Paul was a bold witness in the Roman prison cell, and that just inspired believers all over the world. If Paul can be bold in prison, I can be bold at work. And it caused the word of God to, to spread. When we give our lives for the gospel, no matter what happens, we're doing something that cannot fail. Every sacrifice that you've ever made in the name of Jesus Christ will be used as a part of God bringing the elect to himself. No gospel work is wasted. This is the only thing that sustains missionaries, those who work in the hardest places of the world. 
then my work is not wasted. I'd like to tell you the story of one I've, got, I've told you a story before, but you may have forgotten him. I certainly have. I don't want to forget him. His name is John Lake. He was born in 1903 in Edgeville, South Carolina. He was appointed as a Southern Baptist missionary, and he spent his first 20 years in the Pearl River Delta of China. In the early 1900s, one million lepers lived in China, and they, as soon as they contracted leprosy, they were consigned to a slow physical death and an immediate social death. Outcasts from society, despised, mistreated, lived in isolation. So John Lake decided that he would give his life by spending the rest of his ministry in China among the lepers. So in 1910, he began visiting the, the lepers. He would bring them food and clothes and Bibles and tracts. The lepers begged him, would you help us find land of our own that we can live in as a colony? He searched for many places and finally found the island of Taikam, which was located three miles off the shore, eight square miles and with the help of a businessman in the United States, John Lake bought the whole island for $5,000 and began moving the lepers there. But only after he was granted permission by the pirates who controlled the waters in those three miles. So he had to have meeting after meeting with pirates. John Lake said, the pirates listened to my gospel and they showed us many courtesies. Over the next 25 years, hundreds of lepers would come to live on the island of Taikim. They would build 50 structures, grow gardens, raise sheep, goats, hogs. They built a medical clinic. John Lake wrote many poems in his life, but I love how this one combines the, the work of God among the pirates and the lepers. While robbers find the Christ upon the cross. Lepers cleansed forget their pain and loss. And I am so grateful that all of these lepers came to Jesus on this island because in World War II, the Japanese army invaded Taikim and killed all of the lepers. Where are all those lepers today? Enjoying the glory of Christ. Because a man from Edgeville, South Carolina, moved his family to the Pearl River Delta of China. It seems odd to think that there could be anything relevant between a story that takes place in the mid-1900s and 2021. But you know what? I, when I was reading John Lake's story and thought about 2020 and 2021, uh, I, 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 and the death of those lepers came to the same conclusion. Life is fragile. That's what I've learned in 2020. <laughs> 2021, the economy is fragile. Nature is fragile. Relationships are fragile. We are more aware than ever of the power of disease the power of terrorism, and the power of lawlessness. So what does all of this do? 
Does it produce despair? Retreat? Living in fear? No. It just reminds us that life has always been fragile. And therefore, the goal of life is not to stay alive forever. The goal of life is to prepare people to live forever with Christ. Life is fragile. Let me close with this. This week, we received an unbelievably encouraging report from your mission partners in India. We support a lot of different people in India because of the giving nature of this church. But one of the strategies in 2020 was to make headway in a totally unreached people group. And we, we could say they were unreached, but they're also unengaged. We could not find any record of missionary activity among 750,000 people, this ethnic group. So... Because of your giving, the church planter that has been there for a few years, and he's preached here before, um, he was able to secure funding for another evangelist to go out hundreds and hundreds of miles away from his location to begin investigating how to reach these 750,000 people. And in his journeys, he came across a woman who came to Jesus Christ seven years ago, but has had nobody to disciple her. She, um, she came to Christ, or has had not, not real discipleship, not strong discipleship. She came to Christ in an unusual way. She had contracted AIDS because her husband had been unfaithful, given her the disease, and she, of course, left him to go to a medical clinic to receive care and counseling. It was a Christian clinic. They led her to Christ seven years ago. But, and she lives among these, this unreached, unengaged people group that we just didn't know about her. And this evangelist, hired by their church planner, funded by this church, found her. She's illiterate. She can't read. Doesn't matter how many Bibles you send her. But because of funding and availability, this evangelist is now taking audio messages of the Bible to her. She's learning Bible stories galore, and she is going back into her own ethnic group of 750,000 people and sharing Christ. But it takes an American family moving there to find a church planner who will travel hundreds of miles into remote villages and find her. And I like how they describe it. There is a reason that unreached people are unreached because difficult places are difficult. Whatever it takes. And that's why Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is theirs in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. 
If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.